The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. From Hollywood Pictures and director Roland Joffe comes the classic story. God help me, Esther. I love thee. God help me, I love thee too. Of a love so forbidden. so fierce where is he woman their world would never be the same do you not believe that you have sinned i believe i have sinned in your eyes but who's to know if god shares your views you must wear upon your bodice this symbol do you wait? Put it on. It is not a badge of my shame, but your own. Demi Moore. They are the lie, but you are allowing them to destroy everything that is good in you. Gary Oldman. I'm in hell! Robert Duvall. Behold, the devil's own child! trailer for The Scarlet Letter, the disastrous 1995 version starring Demi Moore and Gary Oldman. What were they thinking? (laughs) What was Gary Oldman thinking when he was appearing in that film? Did you catch that? Did you you catch Gary Oldman? Let's see if if we could hear that again. Shame but your own. Demi Moore. They are the lie, but you are allowing them to destroy everything that is good in you. Gary Oldman. Robert Duvall. Did you hear that? Did you hear? Did you hear Gary Oldman there? (laughs) Sounds like a cry for help, doesn't it? It's hard not to hear that and think he's commenting on the agent. Got him stuck in this film. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if they were playing a trailer and they cut to an actor and the actor said this movie this movie's awful <laughs> don't go see it and gary oldman letting us know just how he feels about being in the scarlet letter this version of it gary oldman I'm in hell! yes you were gary yes you were what were they thinking mike palindrome is here for another round of literature goes to the movies this time we're going to be looking at some books that turned into box office poison. These books that Hollywood scooped up, put into their machine, and chopped up into little pieces in the Hollywood wood chipper. That's today on the History of Literature. <laughs> Here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. This is a fun one today. Hollywood bombs. We have some real stinkers for you. Some stinkeroos. Now, there's an underused word, stinkeroo. You don't hear that one much anymore. 
And in fact, the dictionary confirms that in the bottom 10% of all usage. Stinkaroo. <laughs> Very underused. Well, dictionary, maybe that's because of your definition for it. Here's how Webster's Dictionary defines stinkaroo. Stinkaroo. Definition, stinker. <laughs> maybe people aren't sure, aren't sure why they should use it. Well, I think there's a use for it. We have it today. We'll hear some stinkaroos. And they, the dictionary, to defend the dictionary, they also give a quote. Uh, an example of usage for stinkaroo. The quote is, This guy is an insult to the integrity of the industry and a stinkaroo. <laughs> That's from Otis Ferguson, someone I was not familiar with, so I looked him up. Now I'm really in the rabbit hole, but guess what? It's a wonderland down here. Because guess who Otis Ferguson was? He was the film critic for The New Republic. Film critic, a legend. <laughs> he wrote a, <laughs> he had a famous review of The Wizard of Oz. He was writing in the 30s. On the release of The Wizard of Oz, he wrote, quote, It has dwarfs, technicolor, freak characters, and Judy Garland. It can't be expected to have a sense of humor as well. End quote. <laughs> Otis Ferguson, I wish he had lived longer. He actually died in 1943 after he had signed up. Or World War II after the attack on Pearl Harbor. He died in 1943 when his ship was bombed at the tragically young age of 36. He lost one of our greats. <laughs> Maybe the greatest user of the word stinkaroo in history, Otis Ferguson. Okay, let's take care of some business. I have some patrons to thank. Well, someone's at the door. Yes? Yes, who is it? Hello, I'm Oliver Twist. Oh. More gruel, please, sir. That's all I'm asking for. And guess who's been doling out the gruel here at the workhouse? Ooh, Oliver. Why, it's that insufferable drudge, Mr. Jack Wilson. Oh, that's a little harsh, oh, I think. I guess he ain't a bad sort. Yeah. When he's not jawing my ear off about some chap named Dickens. <laughs> I couldn't care less about meeting some old writer fellow. But I would like some more gruel. Won't you please throw a few shillings at Mr. Wilson so he can spare another spoonful of slot for me and the other lads? We'll consider ourselves grateful. Oh, there we go. That's Oliver Twist asking you to help out. <sighs> you could do that by heading over to patreon.com slash literature. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash literature. There, you'll be able to sign up for a monthly donation. Think of it as buying me a coffee as you listen to the hours of free content that we've made available here, here at the History of Literature. We've made them available just for you. You'll buy me a coffee, and we'll be just like two old friends, killing time, talking about books. I can't wait. This week, we have some new patrons to thank. Paul Hurl Souza, an outstanding new member of the community. Also, Christina Negron from... Mystic, Connecticut, home of the Melville Festival. And I'm hoping, well, I should ask her if she'll be a, our first roving correspondent here. We could, we could use a report from the Melville Festival, maybe next year. My thanks to, oh, and the, one other, uh, an old friend from the blog, Pleasant Street. 
My thanks to those three and all the other Patreons for helping me to keep this show up and running. Once again, that's patreon.com slash literature. And my thanks to those of you who emailed me recently. I heard from listener Bryn, student who lives in New Zealand. Bryn walks to school every day through a Middle-earth landscape, as she described it, listening to the History of Literature podcast. It's, it's simply incredible. What a beautiful thing to imagine. I'm glad you're enjoying the show and enjoying your surroundings. And thank you for the email, Bryn. We've also had a run of emails about relationships recently. I thought I'd share a couple of those with you. Maybe these are kind of a cautionary tale. Want to <laughs> make sure we're not uh, interfering with love lives or anything. Here's one from listener Tim. He says, I recently announced to my wife, the History of Literature podcast is engaging and insightful. She told me to stop shouting. Watching her fitful return to REM sleep made one thing clear. I tend to shout when I wear headphones. <laughs> ah, thank you for doing what you do. Well, you're welcome, Tim. Try to try to smooth things over. I hope you <laughs> I hope your wife is well rested after that alarming wake-up she got. Here's another one. This one is from a fan of the Lusty Lizards episode. <laughs> Boy, that goes way back. So he says, thank you for the show. I started listening on episode 79 on Madame Bovary. Then I went back and listened to every episode, including all of the Jack Wilson shows. The show inspired me to go back to writing. Fantastic. I'm 12,000 words into my new novel. Good. Good luck. And he goes on and says, I told my fiance about the play you wrote about lizards in space, and now every time she says she's so cold, which is often, I tell her to keep it together, Kate. Her name is not Kate. And that, we're on a mission, damn it. He's quoting, he's quoting from the play. He goes on, also once... When she was drifting asleep in the living room, I played the exact bit of Keep It Together, Kate, at full volume using the Amazon Echo device. I'm not sure why she's still with me. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe she admires your taste in plays. Lusty Lizards in Space. That was a good one. Brian Cranston, it was right there. I was practically offering it up to him for, for peanuts. Wasn't even going to make him uh, do a screen test for that one. <laughs> no audition for him or Kate Winslet. I wrote it with them in mind. Oh, boy, we have come a long way on this show. Okay, hopefully we're having an impact on relationships for the better. That's, that's <laughs> hopefully for the better. Okay, here we go. Let's take a look at some movies with Mike Palindrome, El Presidente himself, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Hey, Jack. So the last time we did this topic, when we did uh, great adaptations, we touched off a firestorm of emails. Most were positive, but a few people were enraged or outraged, I guess, that we missed some of their favorites. And I think it's just a really big topic to try to talk about films that are based on books. I don't know. Do you feel as though there are any that you missed that you, looking back in retrospect, in retrospect, wish that you had brought up? I feel like there were a lot of old films that mm -hmm. we neglected. Mm -hmm. Like classic Hollywood? Like Gone with the Wind. And I mean, wasn't Jules and Jim uh, a short story? I think, you know, I mean, all the foreign films that were based on novels that we, we didn't discuss. So yeah. I, like Anna Karenina and, and some of those. Like Beauty and the Beast. Isn't Beauty and the Beast? The, oh, it's the, a fairy tale. Yeah. The Jean Cocteau. Mm-hmm. You know, that version. But, I, I, you know, I think we did a pretty good job. I think so. I mean, we did say at the beginning that it was going to be subjective. Maybe we didn't emphasize that enough, that these were really going to be films that just resonated with us at some point. There's one that I wish I'd taken which is John Huston's The Dead. It's one of those, I know I've talked about it on the podcast before, so I don't feel too bad that I didn't take it, but mm -hmm. it's really one of those films where it matches the feeling of the James Joyce story so perfectly, and it really brings what cinema can bring to a story without getting too far away from the original, and it it's just a really nice compliment to The Dead, and it's one of my favorite films, and I didn't even mention it as, as honorable mention. The other thing I, I was thinking is that there's sometimes I, I see a novel, I see a film, and I think it has to be based on a novel because mm -hmm. there is a depth and backstory and character backstory, and I felt that when I was watching the film uh, The Girl on the Train. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know it was based on a novel because I hadn't read the book, but I just had this feeling it was based on a book. 
as I was watching it. Yeah. It's like you can tell sometimes when a movie is based on a play. Yeah. Okay. So this time we're going to be talking about bad adaptations, some filmic disasters. And I did not find it hard to come up with my list, but I didn't feel the same way that I did last time where I felt bad for leaving so many good ones out. This one, I really... (laughs) (laughs) By the time I got to number five, I had had enough with the research and I was ready to (laughs) do something else. Although I was having a lot of fun with it, but it wasn't one where I wanted to dig into 30 or 40 of these and figure out which were the the best five or the worst five. Yeah, I think I did pick the winner, though, of my number one. Okay, well, I've got a real hot take for my number one. So maybe we picked the same one. So let's hear it. All right. So I went with Dune. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> which... <laughs> wow. Okay. So I, I, it's a 1965 novel by Frank Herbert, which as I was prepping for this podcast, I read that he was held many different jobs, but at one point was an ecological consultant in Washington state. And so I read this book, loved it. Um, yeah. I loved the whole idea of the noble houses and, this young main character whose family accepts charge over the desert planet that produces this hallucinogen, this spice, and just the the social relations of the houses and politics and religion. It was so fascinating. There's even some stuff about like space travel where you fold space so you can travel through time. And so I actually saw the film in the theater. I was 12. I, I went to a sleepover of my mm. friends. Mm-hmm. And we went to see the movie. And I had never walked out of a film before. And I, I almost <laughs> wanted to wa- walk out of that film. And afterwards, my friend's father, you know, we were 12. My friend's father turned to us. He had taken us there. And he said, you guys like this? And we were like, no, no, we don't. <laughs> and he was like, oh, okay. Because I thought that was pretty bad. Yeah. And I, I mean, so... You know, part of this episode, I think, to stay a bit positive, I, I wanted to think about how the film could have been made. Okay. You know, the bad film. And I think David Lynch made, wrote the screenplay, made the film. I think he, like many of his, some of his other works, really overdid it with the visuals. Mm-hmm. And one thing I that stands out in my memory is The Emperor who's really overweight and disgusting, has his wife and friends help him pop his zits. Oh, right. <laughs> Which, you yeah, you want to see a disgusting, overweight emperor done right, you know, I, I look at like a film like Mad Max Fury Road. So that that's a very convincing, uh, frightening, disgusting emperor. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe even like Jabba the Hutt. I mean, Jabba the Hutt's, I, I don't think is, is as scary as people, they intended him to be, but you know, he, he, he does the job. Right. And there's stuff like that in Dune where David Lynch was so enamored of this image he was going to create. And the, the earthworms, the mammoth earthworms, he shows them over and over again. And, <laughs> so one example, I want to contrast that with like Blade Runner, you know, in, so in Dune, there's so much that happens in Dune. I think David Lynch tries to cover a lot of it. 
mm-hmm. kind of picks the wrong things to cover. So right. in Blade Runner, you know, the replicants have escaped from their planet and come back to Earth. And I love that Ridley Scott didn't show the escape scene. Mm. And that's the kind of stuff I think you have to, maybe it could have been a fun scene to show, but mm. right, it's far more interesting that when the movie starts, the replicants are already on the loose. I've never watched a David Lynch movie and felt as if he was putting the audience ahead of himself. Yeah. You know, it always seems like there's stuff in there that he did because either it made sense to him or it was something he really wanted to see or it was part of his vision. You're watching it to get in the mind of David Lynch, but not necessarily. I can't think if he, I I'm, suppose I'm forgetting something, but I can't think of something that has a, a real clean narrative where it's not a, at least a little bit confusing or a little bit <laughs> bizarre or, right. um, you know or out there. So it's too bad because people love, I haven't read the book, but I keep meaning to people love the book. Yeah. The book is fantastic. I mean, it, you, you sink into this world. Uh, he, he did six years of research for the novel. He was inspired mm. by their, their Oregon sand dunes. And he was inspired by that image, you know, stuff like David Lynch cast Kyle McLaughlin and sting. Yeah. In the film. <laughs> <laughs> It's like he cast a rock star and one of his favorite actors who had not really done much before this movie. Right. Um, so here's uh, here's Janet Maslin of the New York Times. Uh, in her review, she said, Several of the characters in Dune are psychic, which puts them in the unique position of being able to understand what goes on in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good pick now I'm ready to take my number one this I want to say right up front all Mm -hmm. of the angry listeners direct your comments to at literature sc on twitter (laughs) because my number one is breakfast at tiffany's wow I know I love that film I know I kind of do too but the more, <laughs> but the more it's crazy because in some ways I almost would have listed it on our best adaptations list. It's just it's one of the most beloved movies of all time, and there are things in it that I think it really does better than any other movie. I Man, know it's gone your... off the rails, <laughs> <laughs> and I in in some ways I don't think it's a bad film. And it's yeah. not a disaster like a lot of the other ones that I've chosen. I think at least three or four that are coming up are some of the worst movies of all time. But here's why I have it on my list of bad ad- adaptations is there are some terrible flaws in that movie that just came from the director. The director introduced them. They didn't need to be there. It's not as if they were in the original mm-hmm. Truman Capote story, which I read again is beautiful. And it doesn't have all of these flaws that the film does. And Blake Edwards, he's very good at certain things. He's great for his comedic touch and the light comedy and the physical comedy. He did, you know, the Clouseau movies and the original ones and and all of those. And here there's some really nice touches. I don't know if you remember the scene at the party where Holly Golightly's cigarette holder accidentally lights the woman's hat on fire. 
And Fred is trying to get her attention from across the room to put it out, but he's stuck behind those some people in the corner. And then just as things look like they're about to get out of control, Holly asks someone what time it is, and the guy turns his wrist to look at his watch, and he pours his drink on the hat that's on fire. You know, that's really nicely done. And, and you watch that, and you just think, this is a director who he's kind of, the camera is kind of moving very fluidly here, and that whole... The way that's done is so nicely staged. And there's another part that I really like where Fred is, he's still stuck in the corner and he's trying to get out of it. So he puts his, his drink on the woman's back. You know, this woman's wearing a sleep uh, backless dress and he places his ice cold drink on her back. And so she, she jumps a little bit and that clears a little space for him to, to walk. And, you know, it's just, it's it feels like a real party. It feels like really smart and cool people at the party and it tells us a lot about our main characters and we do kind of like them. But here are the problems with, with Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mickey Rooney playing the Japanese photographer. <laughs> it is unbelievably unfunny. He's yeah. where he's got those big buck teeth, and that's another thing that Edwards often did. He made a movie called The Party which is a lot like this where Peter Sellers is playing an Indian character. And it's just, it's like in this era where it almost seems like taking some ethnic stereotypical humor, whether it's American Indians or uh, some other group, you know, it, it just seemed like they needed to do it in order to have this comic relief or something. I don't know, but it's really, and I'm not, objecting to this just on politically correct grounds although there's that too but just because how unfunny it is i just cringe when i'm watching uh mickey rooney stomping around and and playing these you know with that really unfunny accent and um it just you know hamming it up and and then you have audrey hepburn who's so classy and so elegant and speaking all these beautiful lines which probably come from Truman Capote and then this stupid Mickey Rooney character with buck teeth and and you know <laughs> making those grunts and noises and it's like Jar Jar Binks it's as cringeworthy as Jar Jar Binks and I read uh, I looked up some lists online of the most racist films of all time uh-huh. and Breakfast at Tiffany's was number two after Birth of a Nation so, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then there's another problem. Not this is not the only problem. The other problem is I think Audrey Hepburn, I know this is going to sound blasphemous. I think she's probably miscast. And Truman Capote thought so. He didn't think she was right for the part. And mm-hmm. he thought Marilyn Monroe would have been better at the part. So I rewatched it really? just to see and I reread the Capote story, and I get what he's talking about. Hepburn is amazing, and she's, I think, every college kid, or actually, yeah, male and female, you know, mm-hmm. that dorm poster of her in the, with that cigarette holder. It's, it's, everybody falls in love with her at some point in their life, I think. She's so glamorous and so elegant. She's like a princess. And that's mm-hmm. part of the problem. You never really think, or I never really thought, oh, this is Lula May from Texas. I think this is Audrey Hepburn. She's the world's princess. 
and she's playing the part of Lula May from Texas, and I'll accept it because I want to watch her on screen for two hours. But it doesn't have the sadness that Marilyn Monroe might have brought. Somebody who had come up kind of from a more of a hard knocks school and maybe had done some things to to succeed that left, you know, some sadness in her wake. And Audrey Hepburn can do sadness, but it's the wrong kind of sadness. It's the sadness of, I mean, Marilyn Monroe's sadness would be that she's so damaged that she's in a corner. And she's got to fight her way out, which is what the character in the in the story is doing. She can't. She knows she can't escape her origins. So there's sort of the sadness of her knowing that her demons are going to get her in the end, and that her happy facade is skin deep. But Audrey Hepburn's sadness is more like a saint's sadness. You know, the world is letting her down. That's that's the sadness is she's she's trying to be upbeat and positive, but she knows that the world is actually ugly and the world is going to ultimately not live up to the model that she herself is or the the expectations that she has for herself. And so it, it kind of it struck me as I know it's, you know, universally beloved, but I still felt like as an adaptation it uh, mm-hmm. could have been better. I, you know, I think of the book as rated R and the movie as like G. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just separate them from my mind. That I, in the movie, did they even say that she, you know, had been an easy woman? Not really, right? Yeah, they really, they kind of, uh, mm-hmm. they kind of dance around it. They, they make it yeah. seem like. Yeah, they they soft pedal it. The the male character in the book is clearly gay. Yeah, and George Papard is clearly not gay. Right. <laughs> Which, I mean, in that alone, in, 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 separated in my mind, the two works is uh, I don't think of them as really related. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why I love the movie. Mickey Rooney aside, yeah. <laughs> So. Mickey Rooney had some terrible quote too. They asked him about it, and he said something like, um, you "Go fuck yourself." Or something. Yeah, he said something like, <laughs> I, "I don't think I have it in front of me," but he said something like, "Yeah, I'll apologize. I'm really sorry that people are so stupid that they think that that's offensive." Or something like that. It's <laughs> uh, awesome. So, as I said, send your angry tweets uh, to <laughs> at literature SC. All right, my second pick was uh, all five versions or six versions. If there's some secret version of The Great Gatsby. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> there's okay. some silent version of The Great I, Gatsby. I know, <laughs> I know a silent so. version. It was probably terrible too. I yeah. had that as an honorable mention. Is there one in particular you're you're zeroing um, in on, or just as a as a collective, I, you know, as a collective, I mean, I, I think one thing is, I, I mean, I, I saw the Baz Luhrmann 2013 version with Leonardo DiCaprio mm-hmm. and Carrie Mulligan, and I just, I want to just make voice how sick I am of big dance scenes where there's water shooting and people are ice skating. Mm. I just, you know, the idea that that's supposed to represent opulence is just so boring. <laughs> It really, it's, it reminds me of watching a Miss America pageant segment. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I'm just so sick of people wearing big feathery plumes on their head and dancing. I just, I just don't think the rich behave that way. Why can't anybody get Gatsby right? I mean, I mentioned it last time, I think, or one of these on one of these podcasts. I mentioned Francis Ford Coppola. He made one. Robert Redford was Gatsby. You would think that would have been a good movie. Well, here, here's what I came up with. Every the problem is that everyone knows the story. Yeah. And, and they they know it when they're young. I yeah. think that's part of it too. They read it in high school or they don't approach it as an adult. They approach it as a kid maybe. I I think it's hard to do to make it interesting because everyone knows it so well. Mhm. And it, it it was on the spectrum when I think of books that should never be made into movies. It's maybe books like this or like Lord of the Flies. I just don't think anyone could do Lord of the Flies. And wait, I know there wait, wait. Lord of the Flies was made. It was a great movie. Well, the old one. Oh, but yeah. The black like and white today, yeah. today. Yeah, yeah. okay. And because it's too well known. And the, I mean, the other side is if the story is too complicated. But here the story is so straightforward. And the other thing I felt is that maybe Gatsby is too flat a character. Hmm. Well, that was a big criticism to Fitzgerald at the time. Well, some people defended it, but a lot of people said that about the book. Mm. You got to make him more rounded. And then some people said, it's okay that it's a mystery. But yeah. for a film, maybe that where Gatsby, you know, they always cast the the star as Gatsby. So if I, if I, could, if I could cast The Great Gatsby, I was thinking I would make Brando Gatsby. Mm. Mm-hmm. And maybe Nick Carraway. Like, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> yep. I could see and, that working. And I almost don't <laughs> think, I, 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 I don't think Daisy should be that big a character. Yeah. So maybe this is an instance where a director or a, a screenwriter needs to take Gatsby as their model, but not be too slavish to the text. Yeah. All right. What was your what was your number two? Okay. So my number two is the 1995 version of the Scarlet Letter <laughs> with uh, Demi Moore, and this bungled. Wait, Gary, was Gary Oldman in that? Yeah, Gary Oldman is oh, in it. God, I think uh, I saw it. <laughs> this film bungled the Scarlet Letter in a serious way. It's so clunky. It's it's heavy with symbolism. Again, this is this feels like a uh, high school student who's been given uh, the project of reading the Scarlet Letter. It's got tacked on scenes. Um, I jotted a few down here: a witch hunt, Indian skirmishes, a nude bath, skinny dipping, a bird that keeps showing up inexplicably, and sex on a bed of dried beans. Um, <laughs> and it. <laughs> changes the ending it gives it a nice hollywood ending uh critics hated it immediately and Mm -hmm. uh karen james of the new york times said if you've read the book you won't know the ending let's just say that indians with flaming arrows come to the rescue they manage to keep a straight face which is more than anyone in the audience will be able to do (laughs) and roger ebert started his review and just said this will not do (laughs) 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 Um, and it really I the more I looked at it the more I thought this might have started a bad run for Demi Moore I didn't know much about her I didn't realize what a 
a tough luck past that she had had. I mean, maybe she would have been a good Holly Golightly. It was, she grew up in a trailer park and her mother and stepfather were both alcoholics and, and she, there were beatings when she was younger. And, and then, um, she, she's still having hard, um, I mean, I don't know if you saw this, but a couple of weeks ago, she revealed that she lost her front teeth, which she says was from stress. But I don't know some they had some orthodontic experts on who said that that could happen from teeth grinding. But you still wonder what else is going on uh, with her now. Um, But anyway, so she she made it out of that horrible childhood and made it into the Brat Pack and she was in St. Elmo's Fire and then she really was on top of the world with, she made Ghost in 1990 and A Few Good Men in 1992. But just when it seemed like, um, you know, the world was her oyster, she entered into this sad world of this this version of the Scarlet Letter and then she went on this run of um, 1995 Scarlet Letter, 1996 Striptease, and 1997 G.I. Jane, and she never really recovered. And she's she's not that old now, but she seems to be, I don't know, her career's on the skids, and she herself seems to be struggling. And I, I have a hard time not blaming the downslide that began when she entered into the Scarlet Letter. (laughs) (laughs) It's a curse. (laughs) Just like poor Hester. So I think I went to see the movie. Uh, My wife's writing her her dissertation on the Scarlet Letter. And yeah, I think uh, she may have had an aneurysm by the end. (laughs) That's my number two. So what's your, uh, what have you got for number three? All right. With three, I went with something contemporary, Ian McEwan's Enduring Love. Ooh. I think I've read the book. I didn't see the film. I don't know anything about it. I I love the book. I've read it three times. And, you know, when you love a book, you inevitably have images in your mind of what the book, the characters are like. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're not exact, but you have a pretty good idea of who, who the character shouldn't be. And in the film, they had James Bond playing the the, the male <laughs> Daniel Craig, the the husband. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and which was totally miscast. Mm. Uh, and they had the stalker played by the gawky blonde guy from I think Four Weddings and a Funeral. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, it was it was terrible. And then they were like the fact that the the, the novel is so good with the, there are these intense set pieces almost. Mm-hmm. Um there's a stunning opening scene with the balloon hot air balloon. Yeah, I don't want to give it away right. if people haven't. It's it's one of the most incredible opening scenes of contemporary fiction. Yeah, it's unforgettable. And then, you know, there's another there's a scene where the stalker declares his love for the the husband and that direct confrontation, which you, you fear for everyone in the room when the declaration is made, the wife is present also. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, the film, it, it, it really shows you how much control a director has and the director's vision. 
because you know he just got it wrong. He each set each scene there are lines of dialogue from the book, but for some reason on on the screen it just it doesn't come off. Mm-hmm. And it's not a long book, so because I think sometimes a longer book you can understand why they're trying to furiously check the boxes as they go. Yeah. But Enduring Love is like 280 pages. I mean, I, I don't know what went wrong other than to, you know, you just think the director didn't get the book at all. Well, with Scarlet Letter, you could tell that what the filmmakers thought was probably, okay, Scarlet Letter, there's a good story here, but the book is really boring. So let's spice it up. How would that compare with what they did with Enduring Love? Well, I was thinking like the the way they the way they spiced it up is to go over events that are in the book, but make make it you know more sexual. Mm. But it, in Enduring Love, there aren't that many events. Mm-hmm. So what they needed to do was to create this mystery of the stalking and it, the way it's done in the book, which is why do people ever stalk and why and what should you do at what point should you take it seriously and right. instead and that's in the book and instead in the movie it's just kind of like paint by numbers like he's stalking them he won't stop he won't give up he won't give up and it's like there's no development at all of mm. this mystery well bill muller of the arizona republic seems to have uh, beat everyone to the punch with his review, which was full of hot air. <laughs> it's a nice balloon tie-in. You know, I I thought maybe the way to address a bad film of a good book is to make a musical out of it. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so go in a completely different direction to try to to, to take back the book. Right. Okay, so I am going to take my number three. I have another uh, great book coming up, Uh, but my number three is one that actually wasn't a great book, so I thought that would be interesting to talk about. I'm going to take Battlefield Earth. Oh, God. Was the book good? Well, no, I I don't think it was. Oh, it wasn't a great book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so (laughs) I don't think... I don't think this was a great book. It's a famous novel or infamous novel written by L. Ron Hubbard, who's the father of Scientology. And the film, what's interesting to me, I couldn't think of another example of a kind of a bad or let's say a weak book that has Mm -hmm. a major star who loves it and who then kind of drives it through as a film and then the film is just a complete mess, a complete disaster, and it ends up backfiring so that instead of introducing the masses to you know, Scientology or the ideas in it, it kind of turned it all into uh, an unwatchable farce. I mean, it's one of the worst films of all time, I think. It, 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 it earned an incredible 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. It won the Razzie for Worst Picture of the Decade. Uh, the screenwriter described the experience as one in which there, he kept getting notes that asked him to take out scenes and add new bad scenes or bad characters until none of it made sense. And he apologized to the world for writing the movie and blamed it on, quote, his penis and John Travolta. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, he, and then he also said that he took a kind of pride, a perverse kind of pride in having been involved. And he said, you know, of all the sucky movies, mine is the suckiest. <laughs> oh, so I don't know if you've watched it. I couldn't finish. I couldn't watch the whole thing. But the plot summary is. Oh, sorry. Have you watched it? No, I would never watch it. <laughs> it's uh the plot summary is when an alien race called the cyclos turns the earth into a mining collie it's up to rebel hero johnny Goodboy to lead a revolt and save the planet from the giant alien species but it's terribly acted there's videos online that are devoted to how stupid the aliens are how they keep doing really stupid things and John Travolta, you'd think that he'd want to look good in it, but he and the other main characters have that weird uh, costume, I guess you'd call it, or where they have, it looks like ropes of snot that are hanging from their noses. And it just, yeah. I found one critic from the New York Daily News said, one of the darkest, ugliest, most uninvolving and incomprehensible major studio fantasies I've ever seen. And... <laughs> Uh, the AV Club said, not so much watched as lived through. Battlefield Earth is bad enough to make audiences ashamed to be part of the same species as the people who made it. And then uh, John Stewart said, a cross between Star Wars and the smell of ass. <laughs> oh. So it's just, I don't know what they were thinking. It seems like it was a John Travolta star project you know that he was able to make because he was a star that nobody had the power to say no or nobody could put the brakes on it or maybe nobody just realized how bad it was turning out but it is uh definitely one of the worst movies of all time i almost i think i blocked it out from my mind <laughs> that it, it was made i think someone was like that movie water world like Kevin oh Costner. yeah yeah, those big... Ishtar, like yeah. Beatty. I think those were like some films I, I, I just successfully had blocked out until today. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so let's move on. <laughs> Enough. All right, so with my four, with my four, I, I picked uh, every X-Men movie. <laughs> really? Because as an X-Men fan growing up... Mm. As a follower, uh, as a disciple of Chris Claremont and his uncanny X-Men. Cause there are two sets of X-Men in, in case people don't, haven't read X-Men. There's the original X-Men, which is Cyclops, Phoenix, Beast, and Iceman. And then there's the, and they get captured by an island that comes to life. Hmm. And then there's the uncanny X-Men, which is the next group that, um, rescues them. And then the original X-Men retire, except for Cyclops, who stays on. But, the films, and I, I, I was trying to figure out what I hate so much about them, and I think it's because they are trying to cover all the characters all the time. Mm. And um, there's so many great storylines in the original X-Men, uh, Uncanny X-Men, um, like the Phoenix Rebirth, which in X-Men First Class they briefly mention, and then Phoenix dies. It's just like it's insulting the way they treat these storylines that took span over you know ten fifteen issues. Um, yeah. Well, I, it, well I just okay. Had, I just had it. 
Okay. I just had it with the X-Men movies. But this this sounds to me suspiciously like somebody who loves a novel so much and then they hate the movie and they almost they're predisposed to hate it because the movie could never be the same as the novel. So can't no, you give I'm, the I'm look <laughs> I, I'm trying. I go to see every <laughs> single one. So, but I, I, without giving away too much, I, you know, I I did enjoy chunks of Logan, the new Wolverine movie, mm-hmm. um, and I think it was because they made up a character, mm-hmm. and they made up an original story. They made up their own story. There's only one thing in Logan which is based on his the comic books. Mm-hmm. Um, Everything else is completely made up. Hmm. I think maybe that's the way they need to do it because, you know, the the way they've covered the X Men is so insulting, and I think it it was summed up at I went to Comic Con in New York, which is a comics <laughs> conference, and right. the line for all this crap, all the lines for all this crap were so long, and then Chris Claremont who's basically the creator of the Uncanny X-Men, was in the secondary room by himself and his friend. There was no line. Mm. And I go up to him, and I get his autograph, and he said, there's so few people who even know who he is. (laughs) Right. like, oh, man. He said that? So everyone's into, yeah, because everyone's into the movies and the movie versions. and Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Mm. Like, but anyway, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I've, I think I've given up on the X Men movies. Mm. Okay, so. <laughs> that's a good pick. This is this this episode's turning very dark. <laughs> <laughs> There's a potential source I'm of giving pleasure. up on X Men movies. Yeah, yeah, I'm and giving I've... up on X Men movies. Like, stop the world. Yeah. Well, I took the axe to breakfast at Tiffany's. I mean, could there be a uh, a lighter, more fun movie than that to to cut off at the knees. Okay, my number four is the film version of Portnoy's Complaint, which is... Oh, I actually uh, like that film. Oh, good, okay. Um, it's a good book, but I was completely disappointed by the film. Um, I thought uh, it was kind of a fiasco. And I thought it was uh, poorly acted. And I was watching some clips of it earlier today that to, to confirm. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where uh, Portnoy is arguing with his parents. And I thought, this mm-hmm. is like watching a bad high school play. You know, this is where when high schoolers are putting on a play by Arthur Miller or some other... You know, Eugene O'Neill or something, Thornton Wilder, and they know that they're saying important lines and that they're giving important speeches, but they're, the tone is all wrong. They don't really understand what they're talking about. And, and the production is, it just goes from uh, peak to peak in this weird kind of, you know, young person suddenly mm-hmm. shouting. And that's what I felt like when I was watching the, the argument between. Portnoy and his father and with his mother trying to intervene. You know what? I did not love this movie. I loved Goodbye Columbus. Oh, yeah. I and think Richard Benjamin, Richard Benjamin the problem. is in both of them. Yeah. 
And that's a good movie. Yeah, I and love he, Goodbye Columbus. And yeah. he plays the sort of Roth stand-in character in that movie. And in Oh, you know, I forgot that he's in both. Yeah. Yep. And in Portnoy's Complaint, he you'd think they could have just continued, but it um it just went off the rails. And it was it was the director's first uh, movie that he was allowed to direct. He was a a screenwriter. He had a lot of uh a lot of strong films and screenplays he wrote the sweet smell of success and he wrote the king and i um he had worked on the sound of music and who's afraid of virginia wolf this was his debut as a director and he fell flat on his face that's a good pick and you know i i was going to pick in terms of philip roth uh one of my honorable mentions was the human sting oh yeah yeah that shows up a lot on uh lists of Bad films. Yeah. Okay, you're down to your last pick. So, I, I I couldn't decide. There were so many bad ones, but um, I I just picked Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh yeah. I actually, <laughs> I actually really loved the book when I was. I read it when I was 17, and I think I had yuppie aspirations. <laughs> and <laughs> and did that? Did the um, book wipe I, them out of you? I, I took it to be like a real cautionary tale, which yeah, I, right. I'm not sure that was the that was the meaning behind the book. No, I, I think so. <laughs> I think so. I think it was saying, you know, here's the really, yeah, here's the soulless yuppie who runs over the kid with his car. I think that's, I think it was a cautionary tale. I, I, maybe he intended it that way, but I, in retrospect, it seemed too corny. Yeah, you know. But the film was, and it's Brian De Palma. I mean, the film was yeah. awful. Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, as basically a bumbling, unconvincing yuppie, mm-hmm. um, gets into a car accident and tries to cover it up. And I forget who played his wife, but boy, the film was so bad. I mean, yeah, and it was one of those where you were hearing all of these stories coming out of the production that things were not going well and that they were shutting things down and rewrites were going to happen and cast members were complaining and it just seemed like a doomed project from the beginning. And then it, what ended up on the screen kind of bore that out. Yeah. I, I almost didn't want to pick it because I, I, I'm not sure I even want to see a film version of it. Mm. So, And I felt that a little bit about certain books like you know london fields has been in production for many many (laughs) years and and same thing with confederacy of dunces and Mm. i almost don't want to see them ever made you know it's funny because i had a friend and i won't name the the friend or the film but uh he had a uh a book that was very popular and successful and a lot of people were going to make films Uh, wanted to make a film out of it and two or three sort of famous directors ended up dropping it and saying, you know, I think it's kind of an unfilmable book. And uh, it was a disappointment. And then uh, a fourth person came and said, oh, no, 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 I see it. I see it. And so that person made the film and it ended Mm -hmm. up being kind of a disaster. And it was really crushing for my friend that this book of his was ended up in this bad place and he was kind of embarrassed yeah. by the film and and 
you know, maybe there are just some books where the right person, you know, the right person with a vision can maybe turn it into something, but maybe they're also destined for a, a bad film being made out of them unless the right person comes along, if that makes sense. Oh, Melanie. Oh, I, yeah. I, go ahead. Melanie Griffin played. Melanie Griffin. Wife. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess that was around the time she had started as a working girl. She was kind of big. Yeah, and Bruce Willis was in it. That was when he was at his peak, <laughs> and uh, Kim Cattrall right. was in it. The early uh, Sex in the City, and right. you know, before the Sex in the City, and Morgan Freeman was in it. Could have been, could have yeah. been good. But then, you know, I was I was surprised at some of the things I came across that a lot of people hated. I Am Legend, mm. and I thought that was such a tight entertaining film mm-hmm. now you pick your five and that you're your fifth and then we can talk about some books that i think honorable mentions and books we actually lo- movies we actually like that are have been panned <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay for my number five i'm not even sure if this is a bad movie i'm not sure what to make of it <laughs> it is just mm-hmm. a wild wild ride of a movie and let me know if you've seen it it's zardoz no. Okay. I so, can't even spell it. Yeah, it's Z A R D O Z. It's from 1974, mm-hmm. and it is the mm-hmm. strangest movie I've ever seen. It's <laughs> kind. It's got Sean Connery in it, and it's kind of. Uh, it's based on the Wizard of Oz, sort of. But there's this this big floating stone head and there's an actual floating head and the whole thing is surreal except that there's all these sort of action scenes like the head will say things like guns are good and then all of a sudden all these guns come shooting out of the head's mouth and all of these people run around and pick up the guns and then Sean Connery shoots the camera it's like it's <laughs> it's like oh my god yeah it's it's just and is this Sean, based on a novel well it's based on the wizard of oz you know oh, so based I'm, on wizard of oz, yeah right. so i'm counting it i know it's probably based on the film <laughs> wizard of oz but it's the film wizard of oz is uh-huh. based on the novel wizard of oz so i'm sort of counting it that way but sean connery and he also wears these tight red they're not quite speedos but he's you know he doesn't wear a shirt mm-hmm. he just wears these uh, trunks, I guess, these tight red trunks. And he does, you know, strange things. And he's he's got a big mustache. And I just, I saw it one night, late at night, and I couldn't believe what I was mm-hmm. seeing. I couldn't believe that he was in it. I thought it was somehow some kind of hoax. And then I came in the next day, and it was when I was working in the and writing film reviews and this guy I asked this this guy who knew everything about movies I said did Sean Connery was he ever in this really crazy movie where he's running around I kind of described it and and the guy said oh you mean Zardoz (laughs) he knew exactly what I was talking about it's just nuts it's so here's Here's the plot, I guess. So Sean Connery is part of a race of humans in the 23rd century called the Exterminators 
who answer only to their god, which is this giant stone statue of a head called Zardoz. And Zardoz, the Oz, is where the, it, that's the nod to the Wizard of Oz. There's another race called the Brutals, which is a lesser race, and Connery becomes a rebel. But all of that makes it seem like there's more of a, more of a plot. It's impossible to follow. It's a shoestring budget, sort of, but the, the special effects are, they're sort of imaginative. So they're just kind of goofy and, and trippy. And I, I just, it, it's hard to explain. I guess if you just watch the trailer, you'll probably get a sense of it. There's also some really funny reviews of it on, uh, online on YouTube. One of them is by some guy I'd never heard of before, but it's called Shitcase Cinema. And he does a, a review of Zardoz that's very funny and gives you a good flavor of just how bizarre it is. Oh, man. Uh, what did you have as your on your dishonorable mention list? Um, I had Watchmen mm. based on the comic book Watchmen because I really love that comic book. Let's see, I had Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. Oh, yeah. A lot of people so, were disappointed with that. They loved the book, and then the the yeah. film was disappointing. Didn't they change that, too? Didn't they? Because the book is kind of uh, atheistic, right? Yeah, I mean, he's a devout atheist. If, <laughs> I think that's the way he puts it. Yeah. Um, I actually, I gave, I gave up on the film. I started to watch it. I, mm. I read the book, but the film, I, I bailed after 30 minutes. Mm. So. Yeah. But then I, I wanted to mention, I started reading how people really panned the movie One Day with Anne Hathaway, which mm. is based on a novel by uh, David Nichols. And I actually thought the movie was great. Oh. <laughs> so... <laughs> Okay. It has a cheesy premise. It it's almost like a the book has a cheesy premise. It's it's like a sitcom premise. It's a story of two people who meet up once a year on the same day every year for twenty years. Mm. Right. So. <laughs> okay. But anyway, I love the film. So I had uh, on my list. I had the Magus, which we talked about before. Um, oh, right. where uh, nobody in the cast had any idea what the movie was about <laughs> and kind of <laughs> fell apart. And then I have not seen these, but I'm hearing that uh, James Franco's recent Faulkner movies, As I Lay Dying and The Sound and the Fury, which didn't make much of a <laughs> splash, but I've, I've heard those are pretty bad, so those seem like they could be contenders for this list. And then I had a... Then the other thing I had were some really creepy beloved children's books. So uh, Alice in Wonderland, the the Tim Burton one with Johnny Depp, is a little creepy. But then the real winners or losers on this list are Jim Carrey's The Grinch and Mike Myers' is, uh, Cat in the Hat, which are probably two of the most disturbing children's films ever made. So dark and twisted, I mean, and I, I don't know why anyone thought they needed to do that to Dr. Seuss. Yeah, I mean, what, like, isn't The Cat in the Hat, does that even have a plot be, besides two pages? No, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's I, just the the parents are gone, like, and what? the cat comes in and 
and chaos ensues, and then they have to clean it all up before yeah. the parents get home. That's really it. They, they, they should make a movie, a, re, a live action movie about the two guys in the Muppets balcony. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're <laughs> left with. I mean, I mean, this is like, this is how desperate yeah. movie studios are in terms of like, let's make a movie where we don't have to even think of the characters' names. We just like, you know. <laughs> yeah, although. That I, I, I would like. I would like to see like three or four movies about them, like uh, sequel yeah. after sequel of those two guys. Yeah, that doesn't seem desperate to me. That seems like a brilliant idea. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you want to see them go home and and you know stop off yeah. at the at the deli and order and just and uh, it, criticizing it could, everything? It'd be like yeah, it could, Seinfeld. It'd be Seinfeld it, and and what's his name? Yeah. Larry David. You ever see the French New Wave film, um, Jean, Jean Delman? About no. this housewife? Um, so she's a housewife who is, I think, a prostitute, but there's a, there's a extended cut. There's a, there's a long scene where she makes meatloaf. It's like 20 minutes. And, mm. you know, you could have the two guys from the balcony go home and like prepare like a pie. <laughs> <laughs> and people would write in and be like, "God, it just—it was so unlike the Muppets. I really, I, I hated it." Yeah. I think it would be great to give them some backstories. <laughs> but they're, they're definitely—was there a meme for a while where those two would would come on and and people would lip sync, you know, insults coming from them or something? That should be a meme if it hasn't been already, where you could show. Uh, <laughs> You know, the presidential yeah. state of the union or something, and then you cut to those two making wisecracks. <laughs> oh, man. I just, I, I, I can't see another movie based on a character that exists that isn't done well. Mm. I, I think my standards are, I guess that's one thing we should mention is that, you know, when you see an adaptation, your standards, you know, right, rightly so, are higher. Mm -hmm. than, you know, when you see a, a regular film. You just expect The Cat in the Hat to be a better movie right? than it is. Yeah, and you'd, you'd go into it thinking, well, they they wouldn't uh, treat this with so callously that they would completely blow it and make it a horrible film for kids to see. You'd think they'd have <laughs> some reverence for the position of the book in children's literature. Yeah. Ah, uh, well... Okay. I feel like I need to go take a shower. <laughs> well, I was thinking maybe we should do a history of literature part three on films. The best scenes mm. in films. Yeah, or you know what someone had asked us to do was just the best screenplays and then to talk about, uh, as we did with song lyrics with Bob Dylan, is whether a screenplay kind of talked through mm -hmm. the screenplay as an artistic form. Mm, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds happier than this episode. <laughs> yeah, although, you know, I think the books you don't need to read is the most popular episode we've ever had of the History of Literature podcast. <laughs> so maybe... maybe on, that, yeah. on that note, maybe I'll try to give Dune another try. <laughs> Yeah, no, or maybe, maybe it's uh, campy now. You know? Maybe it's maybe that's the service we're providing is to 
people just want to listen to the podcast so they know what they don't have to see or or read. So now we've crossed off, you know, 10 or 15 films that people can skip. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome, world. Okay, well, <laughs> let's leave things there. So, Mike, thanks again for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike, of course, our old friend and most frequent guest. We'll be back next time with Sherlock Holmes, or maybe it will be Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Either way, I hope you'll join us. And in the meantime, head on over to patreon.com slash literature to sign up to help us out. Or you can check out our back catalog, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts, or at historyofliterature.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time.